Let's open our Bibles to First uh, Samuel chapter 31. Good to see you tonight. Once again, I come to the pulpit full. I guess you're hoping I'm full of the Holy Spirit, but I'm full of food. It's been... Uh, Uh, it's been an enlarging uh, experience this week, and told my wife I've enjoyed all the meals. So I really appreciate the folks taking time to feed us, and so it's been a been a good week, been a blessing to us. In First Samuel chapter thirty-one. We have, what, from what I understand, First and Second Samuel are originally just one book. I don't know why somebody divided them up, but we certainly have a, a change here. We, we see the end of Saul's rule as the king and uh, really the beginning of David in chapter in Second uh, Samuel. But in verse 4, it says, Then said Saul unto his armor-bearer, They've gone into battle against the Philistines, and things have not gone well. Draw thy sword, and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through, and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword, and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. So Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men that same day together. And when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley, and they that were on the other side Jordan, saw that the men of Israel fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. It came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent into the land of the Philistines round about to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshean. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshean, and came to Jabesh, and burnt them there. And they took their bones, and buried them under a tree at Jabesh, and fasted seven days. So our message tonight is titled, Valiant Men. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this week. Thank you for the fellowship. Thank you for just the opportunity to hear your word. Thank you for the music. And Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts tonight. 
we uh, we believe that there's a supernatural work that needs to be done. Uh, Lord, this is not just something of men or something that we like to do, but we, we desire, we've come here to have Almighty God work in our hearts and change us. And Lord, we want you to accomplish your purpose in our lives. And Lord, in what point or one area that we may be resistant to that, help us now to recognize it and to offer ourselves up to you and allow you to do your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The scene here at the beginning of our passage is a stunningly bleak scene. Israel, after the death of the great man of God, the mighty man Joshua, had sunk into a time of great apostasy and great unbelief and uncleanness and perversion and wicked crime in not too many years so that God basically withdrew His presence, He withdrew His his blessing from the nation that He had chosen, the nation He had delivered, the nation that He had brought into the land of promise. Uh, The book of Judges begins like this, ends like this, excuse me, and of course Samuel follows it. In those days there was no king in Israel, <clears throat> Excuse me. Must part of that that uh, what was that pumpkin stuff we had? Where's uh... oh in the nursery? <clears throat> what was it? <clears throat> I think it's getting to me. That was good. Uh, now where was that? Okay. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which is right in his own eyes. Man, what a terrible situation that is. Samuel the prophet was God's answer to some of that. He served God in Israel. He was greatly used. Uh, Probably as much as any prophet in the Old Testament, he had a mighty ministry so that Israel basically came back from all that the terrible wickedness that we see in Judges and began to uh, rebuild the nation spiritually. And of course, uh, King David had a part in that. But during Samuel's ministry... Uh, at the request of Israel. God gave him a king, and really, what an impressive man King Saul was. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 23 and 24, it says, They ran and fetched him thence, King Saul. Of course, he wasn't king yet. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. So I'm assuming he's about seven foot tall. And Samuel, here's the the man of God. Thank you. Said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted and said, God save the king. Well, they were they were fired up about that. This great man they had before him. Saul was a mighty warrior. And he was used by God to defeat Israel's enemies in battle. In 1 Samuel 14, verse 47 and 48, it says, So Saul took the kingdom over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab and against the children of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, 
against the Philistines, whithersoever he turned himself, he vexed them. And he gathered an host and smote the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of them that spoiled them. So they had been being abused and robbed and oppressed by all these nations all around him. And he, he, Saul took it to him and led Israel in some great military defeats of their enemies. Now, the defeat of Israel, though, this recorded here at the end of Samuel, chapter 31, as, as, as impressive as Saul was on the outside, he was equally unimpressive on the inside and spiritually. Because of Saul's disobedience, because of his stubbornness, because of his unbelief, because of his rebellion, Saul came under demonic influence, and all Israel, all of Israel, suffered under his leadership. Mighty in battle, out on the battlefield, but the nation sinking under his leadership. Both Saul and the nation of Israel suffered under the rebellion that Saul sowed as the king. And God delivered them again into the oppression of their enemies. The defeat of Israel recorded in our passage here in chapter 31, of course, has been repeated over and over in other nations, one nation after another throughout human history. Many a nation, after having the blessing from God, having Him cause them to prosper spiritually and then material in every other way, has turned away from the truth that the Lord has given to them, turned away from proclaiming Him and worship Him, and then they come into similar despair, just like Israel did. And certainly, the United States is in that kind of situation today. Uh, I think of the words of Ezekiel in chapter Ezekiel 22. I'll just turn there and read it to you. When he just God tells Ezekiel what kind of situation Israel is in then, for this very same reasons. Ezekiel 22 and verse 23. It says, "Oh, what? that's not it. Oh, I'm in Jeremiah." Ezekiel. I thought I had it marked. Here we go. Okay. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say unto her, Thou art the land that is not cleansed, nor reigned upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. They, the prophets, have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. Her princes in the midst thereof are like like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. 
And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. Certainly the United States, with all of our glorious history, under God's gracious blessing, has now come under similar despair today, similar terrible circumstances with our rulers and leaders and so forth. We're destroying ourselves. We are burning our assets. We are uh, exalting our faults and thumbing our noses at the God who made our nation great. But our passage tells us that even while King Saul was killing himself to escape the earthly consequences of his rebellion, there were still some valiant men in Israel. They were still some men who had the strength of conviction, men who were able to act courageously, or men who knew what was right, men who had the power to carry it out. And the need for such men in our nation is, is painfully obvious. Uh, Isaiah could have been describing our nation when he said in Isaiah 3 verse 12, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the ways of thy paths. Now we could give so many examples of that. We cannot do much really about the world, about the sorry state of the effeminate males in our country. But we can decide to do something about ourselves. And we can do something about the type of males that we have in our churches. churches. What we're going to see tonight is that when the foundation of God's order is being destroyed by the agents of satanic wickedness, we need men who will unreservedly fight in the defense of truth and in defense of our testimony for God and actually for the people of God themselves. So I want us to look at this uh, passage here in uh, 1 Samuel. We're going to consider, first of all, the triumph of evil that's demonstrated, and then we're going to consider the rising of valiant men. Under the triumph of evil, the first thing I note here is there was a removal of God's warriors. In verse 6... It says, So Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men that same day together. Now it said, King Saul was greatly used by God in fighting their wars, as, as we read earlier, fighting against all those nations. But like Samson, because of Saul's personal disobedience, he could not escape God's judgment. It's, uh, it's a law you can't turn back. It's stated in Galatians chapter 6. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. We read about God warning Saul when he rebelled uh, in killing the Amalekites and he said stubbornness is as the sin of witchcraft. Well, that's where we end up where he sees, we see that he ends up at 
the end of his life, he's, he's going to a witch. Not only Saul, though, it says, but his three sons, one of them was the godly, brave, self-sacrificing, righteous, courageous warrior, Jonathan. What a great man he was. But these men who stood for the Lord, fought for His people, they're being removed off the scene. We see also the surrender then of God's people in verse 7. When the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley and they that were on the other side Jordan saw that the men of Israel fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So they just completely left their homes, left their property, left their means of making any kind of income, providing for the families. They just surrendered all that to the enemy. You know, to me, one of those aggravating, discouraging thing, the thing that I just despise <laughs> is you have, you, somebody will take a stand publicly and then you, it's the next day or the day after that, they're going to apologize for doing it. I, it <laughs> that's hard to take. And that's where we are. And, you know, we talked about Peter earlier in the week. Um, Peter, the difference between Peter and Saul was that Peter got things right with God. He repented, but Saul would never do that. And uh, Pastor Byler and I, Russ, Schmid, the leaders in our churches, our, our deacons and so forth, the men that teach in ministry, we need to realize Ezekiel 34 verse 7 says, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children upon the third and fourth generation. You know, Hezekiah was a great king. But when God told him because of what he had done that Israel's going to be punished, but it wouldn't be in his days, well, that's good. At least not in my day. Even though he was bringing judgment of God upon his children, his grandchildren, and so forth by his action. We surrender. Matthew 18, Jesus gives one of the sternest warnings in all of Scripture in verse 6 and 7. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe unto that man by whom the offense cometh. So King Saul is multiplying the effect upon the nation, upon the people of God. So then the next thing we see is the mockery of what's honorable. In verse 8, it says, It came to pass on this morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons falling in Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent into the land of Philistines round about to publish it in the house of their idols among the people. Now remember, King Saul, he had been the face of Israel. He was the almost a giant, great warrior, great leader, great military commander, 
And now his head is hung in a pagan temple. His armor's there to demonstrate, to remind everybody, to show everybody how they've been defeated. Now, they thought they were mocking the Lord when he was on the cross, and they did, but didn't. <laughs> He's going to have victory. But when we start losing men of God, it will stand and. God's people start surrendering. Pretty soon, everything that we hold sacred is is mocked. And then, of course, in their place, there is the elevation of wicked vanities. In verse 10, it says, They put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth, and they fashioned his body to the wall of Bethshan. So, the triumph by the Philistines enabled them to say to everybody, Well, our God... Our gods have defeated the God of Israel. Jehovah is not Almighty. Jehovah is not the Creator. Jehovah is not the Savior. But our gods, they're the champions. They're the great gods. They have triumphed over the Creator and only Savior. This is a terrible time. And it's a terrible time in our nation. And evil triumphs. And nobody will stand for anything. And you know, this thing about the mask, I was talking with somebody yesterday. I think it was. I don't know. We, we just... You get something like this COVID and the the whole world is controlled by it. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's not going to have any problem getting his program instituted and have absolute control so that we bow down to worship him. I'm not going to be in that group, but all the world be bowing. He's going to be controlling every penny they spend. Triumph of evil is a wicked thing. And yet we have, in the midst of this terrible circumstance, some men who had some moral and spiritual character. And these men, these valiant men, rose up. It happened because they heard of the evil report there in verse 9. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent it to the land of the Philistines roundabout to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. And verse 11 says, And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose. You know, one of the biggest, most common works of Satan is to spread bad news. In the book of Job, one of the things there is here's a man that that says was the greatest man basically alive at that time. A righteous man, had a good family, extremely uh, prosperous financially and so forth. And in Job chapter 1, it says this in verse 13. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. 
And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, and they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep. That's fake news. The fire of God didn't fall. But he's putting the blame on God. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped to tell alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants which the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Verse 18, While I was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. You know what that is, don't you? That's an example of the news cycle. It's one bad thing after another. I had to watch myself. You know, you got, you got that phone with you, and you get up in the morning, you can read bad news as soon as you get out of bed. You can mess up your breakfast. You can mess up your devotions. Mess up your prayer life. Because Satan's going to make sure that we, that we hear the bad news. And the distress that it brings upon people, it's like in Second uh, Samuel chapter 1, when David heard all these things, he and, and all of Israel wept and... David said, how are the mighty fallen? And he talked about King Saul being the anointed of God, and he talked about his fellowship and so forth with Jonathan and the things of God and how they had fought together and how they believed God and so forth and trusted the Lord. And now Jonathan and his brothers, are they're all dead. But the response of those who are valiant in godliness is not defeat and discouragement. Here in 1 Samuel chapter 30, in verse 6, it says, So Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men that same day together. But that was a terrible thing. But we read about what David did when the bad news came, when he went out there with his brothers, you know, when he was just a young, younger guy, comes out there to the battlefield, runs to see how his brothers are doing, and they're all cowering because there's a 10-foot giant out there. And every time he comes up, Israel runs. And he starts asking about it. David starts asking about it. And all the army is discouraged and defeated and so forth. But he says, is there not a cause? They were upset with him because he dared to challenge, to, to, to bring up saying, you know, why is Israel running from a man of the Philistines? 
That's the way a man of God, a man of valiant and courage and so forth, there has to be a, a rising up against evil. There has to be a response against the news of people, other people giving up and compromising and doing terribly wicked things. There has to be an exposure and confronting of sin. You know, one of the primary reasons that Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians is because he says in chapter 5, he said, you know, there's a report about what's going on in the church there in Corinth. It says it's reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication is not so much named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. You know, pastors hear bad news. All of us hear bad news. <laughs> and we can have a tendency to be discouraged. Paul, man, he said something's got to be done about this. We can't just let this go on. These are people who have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. They've been baptized in His name. They're assembling together in His name. This kind of thing can't go on. He wrote the church there in Rome. He said, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. You can't let that happen. Somebody got to take a stand against it. In 1 Corinthians 16, he, when he got to the end of that letter to the church there at, Philippi, uh, at, at Corinth, he said, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit ye like men, be strong. He was exhorting them to do this. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes to Timothy, who's a younger man than he is, and he says this, Holding faith in good conscience which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. What does a man do when he hears bad news? Does he quit? Does he get discouraged? A lot of times, but you can't stay there. And so here is... Uh, some, uh, a, a group of men in Jabesh Gilead, when they heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, it says they rose up. They rose up. And they put on strength. I've already mentioned some of those things, just like Paul ch uh, charged the church at Corinth. Quit ye like men. Be strong. It's not a time to quit and give up and be weak and so forth. Proverbs 24 verse 10 says this, if thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. What's one of a man's really basically his whole job? Is to solve things. Is to face trouble and difficulty and get it changed. Do whatever is necessary whether it's on the job, in our homes, in our individual lives, whatever it is, 
It's the responsibility of men to stand up and get the work of God done. You know, quit is to put on strength. And David did this over and over. David came back after he'd made a foolish decision to go join the Philistines when King Saul was chasing him around. And he tried to take his men into battle against Israel, which was totally wrong. Came back. Ziklag. And every one of them's house or tent or whatever they lived, every one of them was burned to the ground. None of their wives, none of their children, none of their possessions. It was all destroyed and taken and pillaged because of a wrong decision that David made in not trusting the Lord. And they were going to kill him. He said, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. And he not only encouraged himself, but he encouraged, encouraged the rest of them. we got to put on strength. Job said in Job chapter 3, verse 25, The thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was... Uh, that which I was afraid of has come upon me. You know, in our nation, we got people who are scared to death all over the place. Church is even afraid to meet. I was telling somebody the other night, I think, I think it might have been last night. I said, those churches, these churches have already, they were already worthless. It's just like the stuff that's in my garden. It's dried up. It's not producing any fruit. All that's left now is just cut it down and burn it. And that's the way many of the churches are in the United States because they don't have valiant men. Got these Methodist churches. These women are running around with pantsuits and blue hair. length of a man's haircut the woman's a pastor she's the woman that oversees the finance that is a woman that's doing that women deacons women Sunday school teachers can't hardly find a, a man in a lot of those churches and the way that we build strength is by being tested and tried and then obeying the Lord you don't run from hardship. You embrace it. Talked about Sunday. This is what we live for. The Lord says we're appointed to suffer for Him. He suffered for us. And parents, we have to understand a, a, a major job of parents is to take our children and to make soldiers out of them. To make warriors out of them. Instruct them. Test them. Don't be scared to death and fearing about the trials they're going to face. That's part of their their lives. That's what's going to make them strong if we teach them and give them a kick in the rear end and tell them, you know, get out there and do what you're supposed to do. Of course, if you're going to be strong, you've got to put away softness. Verse 12 here, it says, All the valiant men arose and went all night. 
They could have waited till the middle of the day, the next day. They couldn't wait that long. Paul wrote to Timothy. You know, just think about Paul training under Timothy. It's Philippians where Paul says, well, I was shipwrecked three or four times. They beat me, put stripes on me, I don't know how many times. And he goes through all these things. He was stoned. <laughs> That's not the guy I'd want to be learning from. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes to Timothy and says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve for my forefathers with a pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy father Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Tells them to get busy doing what God had called them to do. And Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And he says this to him in chapter 9. Uh, yeah, chapter 9, verse 19. He said, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant to all. By the way, that's nothing but slave. That's what it is. I've made myself a slave to everybody. Unto all, that I might gain the more souls. Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law is under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them without law is without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means have some, gave, save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that strives for the master is temperate, he's self-controlled, he's disciplined in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. You've got to put away softness. You had to make a deliberate choice about that in our society. <laughs> I've never been hungry in my life. I've never had to do without anything. We were eating uh, supper with Andrew and Melinda, 
we're talking about some of the things they, all the vast hoard of money they had when they were in Bible college. But what America, what American has ever done without except because of somebody's sin? Really? It's like the guy that called me, this is a number of years ago, and he wanted the church to buy him a motel room so he could have a place to stay. And I give him some money for this and that. And I said, what's that I hear? He says, the TV. It was a big, he had a big screen TV. <laughs> he didn't have anything, but he had a big screen TV. He was watching TV. Boy, he was suffering, wasn't he? Trying to make a living begging. He had more food, more shelter than probably half the people in the world. We need discipline in our homes. In Hebrews chapter 12, Paul writing to the Jews there, he says, Now no chasing for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are, which are exercised thereby. You know, in a lot of sermons I get to laugh about that, my mom whipping me. But it wasn't pleasant then. And... Uh, she didn't tolerate when you're out there supposed to be working in the garden pulling weeds or picking beans or whatever it is. She didn't tolerate lallygagging around or complaining or griping or something like that. I think about this great nation we live in. Thursday was uh, Constitution Day. The Declaration of Independence starts like this. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of a right ought to be free and independent states. You know, they're writing that too as the most powerful nation in the world at that time, the British Empire. That they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown. That all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They meant that. There's a large percentage of them that lost basically everything they had. But look what we have because of that. You've got to put aside softness. There has to be the removal of uncleanness. Here in this passage, these valiant men arose in verse 12. They went all night. They took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons 
from the wall of Bethshan and came to Jabesh and burnt them there. And they took their burnt their bones and burned them. Now, the Israelites didn't normally cremate. But those bodies were already being defiled by the enemy. And they wanted to prevent any more of that happening. And so they, abuse, they burned those bodies. And we need to remove the defiling influence of the world and its wickedness in our lives as well. In Numbers chapter 33, verse 51 and 52, the Bible says, Speaking to the children of Israel and saying to them, When you are passed over Jordan, the land of Canaan, you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures and destroy all their molten images and quite pluck down all their high places. I think I told this the other night. We were at Dr. Cofty's funeral Monday. And the last guy that got up and spoke, I think it was the last guy, the pastor, what, they had several pastors giving testimony. And this guy had said that uh, he had been a teenager in the school where uh, pastor, uh, Cofty was a pastor of the church. And that he didn't care anything about living for God. He played basketball. And before the end of the year, or the, I don't think it was the end of the year, I forget what time of the year it was, but anyway, he wasn't living for the Lord. He wasn't keeping the rules and so forth. And so Cofty called him and his dad in the, into his office and said, you know, you're, you're violating the rules and we can't let you, you graduate from this school. I think it was the end of his junior year or maybe already into his senior year. And that, that guy said, I, I never saw my dad cry. He said, he bawled. But they, they wouldn't let me graduate. He said, so I'd come to the games and watch some. He went to public school. And uh, Cofty saw him at the games. So I don't know how many times he'd been there, but Cofty called him outside and said, I need to, need to talk with you. And he came out there and he said, you can't come to the games anymore. You're a bad influence on the students in this school. We can't have you around here. So not only did he kick him out of school and they wouldn't allow him to graduate, and he said they were expecting a state championship team. But he said, we don't even want you around our students. Somehow or another, we... Christianity today is just it's rotten. It's corrupt. You don't have any standards of holiness. There's, there's, it's like you can't be defiled anymore. You be a Christian, just get defiled with everything. Zephaniah, the prophet, said this in chapter 1. This is you know, the minor prophets preaching judgment or anything. He says, "...you'll come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes," that is, the rulers, and the king's children, and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. In the same day also will I punish those that leap upon the threshold, which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. They got terrible things going on. They said, you're not wearing the right clothes. You're wearing clothes like the pagan do. Strange apparel. 
Leviticus 19.28, he says, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. Israel was expected to be different. They didn't do branding, scarring, cutting, holes. Again, I I know our, our folks have heard me say this. I remember being in the fifth grade in a public school and then passing around pictures of pagan people in Africa who had big old things in their lips and rings around their necks and these things in their ears and all that stuff, cuttings all over them where they'd scar themselves and tattooed themselves. And we thought there were savages back then. When Israel went into the promised land, they told them to burn all the pictures there. Get rid of them. All the pornography. All the lewd things that were on common display among those wicked nations, which God said, I want you to exterminate every single one of them. Now today, as a church, we don't exterminate. We don't go out killing our enemies. We evangelize them. But what if we look like them and act like them and live like them and talk like them? They were here in the uh, graveyard on one of those tombstones it says something to this effect. Now, this is not exact words, I'm sure. An honest man is the greatest work of God or something like that. You know? (laughs) A guy, if he's honest and he's decent and he's clean, that's the great work of God. Valiant men are strong because they're clean. And of course, that means we have to pursue holiness and reverence I notice the very last thing in this entire book, 1 Samuel says, and fasted seven days. We can't pamper the flesh and give in to our desires. We had to teach spiritual disciplines. How many Christians actually rise up er- excuse me, rise up early and meet with God in His Word? To spend time in prayer. How many churches have ever had, never had, a time of fasting? It's because they don't see any reason to. We're just too busy fulfilling the lust of our flesh and so forth. My passage Sunday from Matthew Disciples had no power. They could not do what they were supposed to do, what they'd been doing. And Jesus said, this kind comes out, comes out by, but by nothing but prayer and fasting. We need to get involved in the spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers 
against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Yet the biggest evangelical churches got the devil's music. They dress like like they have no honor or glory. Just look as grungy as you possibly can while you're serving and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. I know as Pastor Byler's desire and mine, I know I've been praying that God would raise up somebody to lead Calvary. If the Lord tarries and my time's over, I don't want somebody that's going to come in there and drop all the standards. I want somebody that understands them is going to fight for them better than I have. We want valiant men, valiant women. We're being overrun. We need dads that are going to bring their kids to men's prayer breakfast or the men's camp out. They're going to take their families soul winning. Going to show them how to witness. Going to teach them how to stand up against family that's against them and things like that, or take a stand at work and be willing to lose their job if they need to, because of conviction about right and from wrong. This nation was going under, and their king been killed, killed himself, and his body's being abused in the temple. This man said that we can't allow that. And valiant men got together and they did something about it. And again, I thank God for valiant women, because it takes women of conviction just as well. And if we don't have that, as far as so many Christian men are today, we're, we are going to be in bad shape.